first. We start with runaway inflation in British Columbia and the rest of Canada. Inflation galloping at a 30-year high. Gas prices, oh my goodness, look at the price of gas in Metro Vancouver. It is soaring again. The highest ever, highest in Canada, highest in North America. Remember what John Horgan said a few weeks ago about inflation? He was going to do something about it. He actually assigned his finance minister to get on the job here and fix this inflation and do something about it. Here's what Horgan had to say here just a few weeks ago. We're continuing to look at initiatives all the time. Minister uh, Robinson has been directed by me uh, to look at uh, uh, efforts to uh, bring forward initiatives to assist with inflation. We'll, uh, we'll see how that goes. I don't want to say we'll have something to say in a few weeks because then the questions will start tomorrow. But uh, Minister Robinson is seized of this. Uh, her responsibility as finance minister is to try and find ways to uh, use uh, the, the strength of a $70 billion economy to try and make sure we uh, reduce uh, the challenges for British Columbians. And I, I know she's uh, uh, steeped in that and she's been working on it for months and will continue to work on it in the days ahead. Okay, that was back in April and he said he'd assigned his finance minister to do something about inflation. Here we are into June. Well, let's get an update on what's going on with us now. Speak to Peter Millobar, Liberal MLA, Kamloops North Thompson. Peter, thanks for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Always good to be on. Okay, what's happening with this inflation task force or whatever he's got? He, Corgan has his finance minister working on it. We heard that clip from April. What has been done on this? Do you know? Well, it doesn't appear to be much, and, and that's, uh, you know, a scary part for a lot of people. That's been almost two months now that the Premier said he directed the Finance Minister to to take action and come up with initiatives and measures that would help people in their homes. Right. Uh, we have not seen or heard of anything. Meanwhile, we're seeing ever-increasing uh, interest rates at the same time as ever-increasing gas prices, and people are getting uh, more and more pinched and, and more nervous as to what is going to actually uh, unfold for the future. What can she possibly do about it, though? I'm speaking about Selena Robinson, the finance minister. And yeah, you heard Horgan saying she's on this. She's on the job on this. She's steeped in this. She's totally seized on this inflation issue and she's going to do something about it. Like you said, that was two months ago. But what can she reason reasonably and realistically do? Well, we, we brought forward three suggestions and strategies that they could implement uh, almost immediately for for relief at the price of the pumps for people. Uh, there's also an, an enhancement they could uh, issue for the carbon action tax credits that goes to low- and middle-income households. That would need to get uh, through and authorized to the federal government very quickly for disbursements. Uh, July 5th, they're probably going to miss that window as well. And that's on a backdrop, let's remember, where the finance minister, when asked about interest rates rising, that she would be studying to see what impact it would have on the provincial budget. Well, page 81 of her own budget is very clear. It's $185 million more of taxpayer uh, carrying costs of their debt uh, for every 1% increase. We, we've seen already this year alone around $300 million more of borrowing costs. Um, and so it's no wonder they're also trying to cancel school projects right now. Okay, what? Okay, let's before we talk about the school projects, I want to get your take on that too. But let's let's talk briefly about gas prices. So gas prices soaring again, highest ever. We've got record high gas prices once again. So the liberal proposal on this is to remind me again: you want to cut gas taxes? 
correct? Well, we, we've said that you could do a temporary uh, uh, removal of provincial gas taxes. That would provide relief at the pumps like we have saw in Alberta. We're still 50, 60 cents a litre uh, more expensive than Alberta today. Uh, we've called for a, a redisbursement of uh, the carbon action tax credit that people see and quarterly checks come out from the federal government distributed. Uh, the provincial carbon tax portion is part of that uh, with your GST rebate. Uh, that would go to low- and middle-income families. The next uh, disbursement is July 5th. But the province, if they're not going to direct the feds that there's extra money to, to be distributed at this point, uh, they're going to miss that window, which means the, the most vulnerable are going right. to have to wait at a minimum another quarter uh, before they'd see any relief. And, and uh, you know, we just don't know exactly what the finance minister's been doing uh, for the last yeah. few months since the premier directed well, she's working on it. With initiatives. Well, well, working she, on she, it. she must be working on it. Okay, yeah, well, let's that doesn't pay for people's bills at their homes. That's the problem. Let's listen to what Horgan... Horgan did have some advice for people who are faced with these sky-high gas prices. Here's Horgan's advice. Right now, I encourage people to uh, think before you hop in the car. Do you need to make that trip? Is there a way you can do it with a neighbour or uh, someone who's going by? Okay, so like someone's going by, you know, maybe you could uh, hitchhike, grab a ride, ask your neighbour for a lift... Or maybe just don't drive. Like, just think twice about that trip, right? Before you get in the car, start burning up all that expensive gas. Maybe yeah. just have a, have a little rethink about it. I, I think uh, the most insulting and, and perhaps tone-deaf part of that whole comment is that it's as if the Premier, who just gave himself a 10% raise and the rest of his cabinet a 10% raise, thinks that uh, people in their households haven't already been making adjustments as they see the cost of everything rise. Uh, they have been. Uh, the point is uh, that they have been. They've been asking for help from government. Uh, the Premier two months ago said he directed his finance minister to come forward with those ideas in the coming days. Uh, yeah. And here we are two months later, and there's there's nothing. And so that's where people are getting uh, frustrated and offended by the Premier's comments in that they've been doing what they can. I don't think they needed yeah. the Premier to tell them uh, maybe think of uh, how many trips you need to take in your car yeah. if you find gas expensive. They're already doing that, and they're still having trouble making ends meet, getting to work, getting their kids yeah. to their activities. Speaking to Liberal MLA Peter Millibar, we're talking about inflation and the cost of living in British Columbia. Let's talk about those cancelled or delayed school projects now. On yesterday's show, I spoke to Tracy Loeffler. She is the chair of the school district in Mission, and they've been waiting for a promised new high school there for years. They've got a high school there that's about, it's like 70 years old, built in the 1950s. It's at 109% capacity, so kids are squeezed in there like sardines, and they have promised a new high school. And now that project has been deferred. It's one of seven public school projects that the education ministry has now said will be delayed or deferred uh, because of cost pressures. Here's what she had to say to me yesterday in the show, Tracy Loeffler. The community uh, is is uh, quite disturbed and upset to hear that this has been deferred. This has been an ongoing issue in our community for years. We have been advocating for this for years. Students need a, a, a better learning environment. Okay. Okay, John Horgan was also asked about these uh, school project deferrals, and uh, he didn't know about them. Here's what he had to say. It's news to me. Um, I'd, I'd like to see uh, the correspondence. Uh, certainly did not come 
from uh, Treasury Board. Uh, we have no freeze in place. Uh, we have the largest capital budget in BC history, uh, which is focusing on building new schools, uh, seismically upgrading those that are at risk. Okay, I guess, I don't know, you can't expect him to be a micromanager and know every single move the government's doing. Peter Millibar, your thoughts? I mean, you got these school projects being delayed, deferred, and it was news to the Premier. Your thoughts? Well, first off, three of those schools are in the Premier's riding, so it makes you wonder how much of a constituency MLA Are they? Wait, wait a sec. Are they Are they in his riding? Yeah, I thought three, three elementary yeah. schools, Langford, South Colwood, and Seismic Upgrades in Port Renfrew and Souk. They've all been uh, uh, delayed. And so... You know, the, the problem is the, the minister and the premier and, and government in general has been trying to say this is about fire, floods, and COVID. Well, let's look at the budget. There's $2 billion identified for COVID measures. There's a couple billion dollars identified for flood and fire mitigation and, and recovery, as well as the $5 billion that came from the federal government. So this is not about money needed for fire and floods and, and COVID. That, that money is well identified in the budget. This is them on the fly post-museum, billion-dollar museum announcement, uh, needing to start to look as interest rates climb, as, as uh, their new museum uh, capital plan uh, can, and starts hitting them between the eyes, needing to find areas to cut back their capital spend to try to make uh, their museum project work. They're not being forthright about that. They're trying to use COVID and fire and floods as an excuse. It doesn't hold up to any scrutiny whatsoever. Okay. Peter Millibar, thank you for coming on. Great. Thank you. All right, here we go now with Canada's travel troubles, the brutal lineups at airports, the delays and backlogs to get a passport or a Nexus card in this country. You got Duncan D standing by. First, let's have a little listen here again to Ryan Whitney, the former NHL player, his video that's gone viral after his nightmare through Pearson International Airport in Toronto. Here's a little of what he had to say. There's a million canceled flights, everyone's just panicking. So I waited in that line about six hours. So by the time I finally see someone from Air Canada, it's 1 a.m. I said, can I just get my bags? I had a ride to Buffalo all set up. I need to get out of this airport. This is the worst airport on earth. I'm telling you, there's no other airport like this. Okay, the worst airport on earth is how he called it. The Toronto mayor is now calling for the Toronto airport to be fixed up. I guess if there's ever any silver lining for us here in Vancouver, it's that maybe the Toronto airport's in worse shape. Let's check in with Duncan D. now, former chief operating officer at Air Canada. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Duncan, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. What did you think of that video, this uh, Ryan Whitney video that's gone viral? It's racking up close to a million views here now. What are your thoughts on it? It's actually close to 2 million views now. Oh, um, wow. Okay. Absolutely. It, it's insane. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I feel a little bit vindicated because my first tweet about this was a photo on the 2nd of April. Um, it's been going on for 67 days now, Mike. Um, and uh, it's not uh, looking like it's getting any better soon. Okay, is it just Pearson International that's the big problem here? I mean, we have had lineups and delays at YVR, but I don't know. It sounds like maybe it's gotten better in Vancouver. Well, you know, in 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 um, the fairy tales, they talk about the, the three ugly step, stepsisters. And I would say in this particular case, Pearson is the ugliest of all of them. But Vancouver <laughs> and Toronto, uh, Vancouver and Montreal um, are competing uh, in as well, you know, in in Montreal with the the uh, Quebec um, Saint Jean Baptiste holiday coming up on the twenty third of June. 
they're going to start seeing traffic build there earlier than in the rest of the country by about a week. So, you know, keep an eye out on Montreal. And the one thing that um, I need to remind listeners in the Vancouver area is, you know, about two-thirds of flights in this country either go to, through, or from um, Toronto, Air- Toronto Airport. So, you know, your, your flight may be going from Vancouver to, let's say, Tokyo, but that aircraft that came in likely came in from Toronto. So if there are delays in Toronto, there will be delays in Vancouver as well. Yeah, okay, so it could have like a bit of a domino effect at other airports, including YVR, but man, oh man, that Pearson International in Toronto, that looks brutal. And now you've got the mayor pleading for someone to fix it. Like, who is supposed to fix it here? Like, like who dealt this mess? Well, you know, the, the funny thing, Mike, is that yesterday, uh, the Canadian Air Transport Security Agency, CATSA, the guys responsible for the uh, air security at all the airports in the country, they, they had internal documents that showed that they anticipated back in January that traffic would be increasing between three and four times what they were in 2021. So they knew in January that this was about to come. And I guess somebody decided not to do anything until the end of May. And they've now said that they've got the minister is very proud of himself that he's got 400 screeners starting, the, starting work at the end of June. So, I mean, it might be a little bit late to start brand new employees uh, at the start of the peak, but, you know, it, he thinks it's going to be um, back to normal by the end of June. Hmm. Speaking of Duncan D., former senior executive at Air Canada, in that video, and we played a little bit of that Ryan Whitney video, as you mentioned, two million views online now, this guy's stuck at Pearson International Airport he didn't seem to be very happy with the airport staff, but he also called out Air Canada there a few times and, and griping about Air Canada. Like, what are your thoughts on that as a former Air Canada executive? I mean, is, do the airlines, are, are, they, are the airlines partly to blame for any of this, or is it all down to the government? Look, I mean, first of all, let me say that he was an Air Canada customer. So at the end of the day, Air Canada is responsible for him, and Air Canada had to get him where he needed to go safely and as comfortably uh, and as as comfortably as possible. The situation, though, that airlines are dealing with right now are absolutely impossible. Uh, an airport, an airline, air transportation is a team. It's a team game. You know, this is not one one group of people uh, that does their own thing without regard for what's happening with the other group of people working at the airport. When the delays at customs are three and four hours long, when the delays at security are three and four hours long, there simply are not enough aircraft, flight crew, staff, or empty seats to fix the situation. And Air Canada has been dealing with this now for over 60 days. For 67 days, from my own personal experience, it's likely even longer than that, where they've had to deal with delay upon delay upon delay caused by the government of Canada. And so whether it's Air Canada or WestJet, they, they are in a, an impossible situation. They don't even have a couple of days without delays so that they can catch up. And the, the part that's making it even more difficult is they are facing a huge bump up in traffic in about two yeah. weeks' time. Yeah, right. I mean, the summer the summer travel season is is approaching. Speaking of Duncan D, former chief operating officer, Air Canada. So let's have a little listen here to what the feds are saying and how they're responding to this criticism and, and pressure. Omar Al-Gabra is the federal transportation minister. 
And let's play a clip of him here. You'll hear him talking about precisely the point you just mentioned, the approaching summer travel season. Let's listen to what he has to say, and then I'll get your thoughts. We want to deal with these wait times as quickly as possible. And we are adding resources, we're addressing processes, and we want to fix them quickly. So, uh, and, and we know that even the summer season is going to be busier. So we have to get these things done by, before the summer season. Right. Okay. So he said he knows the summer rush is coming, and they're they're working on it. I mean, do you have any have any faith in the government? They're going to get this fixed. Well, I, I'm glad he's finally woken up to it because my first tweet, like I said earlier, was uh, you know two months ago. Uh, so if that's quick uh, by his standards, um, you know, it sounds awful slow to the thousands of travelers who have missed connections, who have had their trips ruined in these you know two months that this has been going on. You know, he he. He wants to act. He's talking about acting. Um, the lineup started in uh, early April. Vancouver YVR was asking customers to arrive three hours before their flight um, for right. I, over a month now. And he's finally sending in 400 screeners at the end of this month. So, you know, I guess that's quick by his uh, own standards, but it sure is, it, it, it sure is not uh, for travelers and uh, the airports and airlines. Okay, let's listen to some more comments from the Federal Transportation Minister. Here is Omar Al-Gabra. Let's have a listen. I feel like we are turning a corner. Um, I'm, I'm watching um, the statistics on a weekly basis from airports, and I see that CATSA waiting uh, times are coming down, but still not satisfied. There, there are still occasional moments where we have surges there are significant peaks and valleys when it comes to airlines and flight schedules. Okay, CATSA is the Canadian Air Transport Security Authority, so they do the security screening at Canadian airports. And you heard the minister there, Duncan, saying, well, it looks like we've turned a corner, the wait times are getting shorter. Is that what you're hearing too? No. Um, the oh. only reason why he's able to say that is because travelers are showing up at the airport three hours before their flight. So, you know, I'm not sure that's a fix. Uh, telling a traveler flying from Vancouver to Calgary, like, you know, a, a, an hour and, and change flight, um, that they've got to show up three hours before their departure doesn't sound like a solution to me. Um, you know, it, it's it, trying to make things better on the backs of the flying public, the folks who pay his salary, the ones who pay, uh, who, who, who save their money to make that one great summer trip with their family a year doesn't sound like it's the right thing to be doing. Talking travel troubles with Duncan D, former executive at Air Canada. Have you experienced any airport lineups recently? How about trying to get a passport or a Nexus card? Phone me on the open line on that and tell me your story. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to Deborah calling from Abbotsford. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Mike. Yeah, I was in Toronto the week before last and in Winnipeg last week. And in every instance, it was all about the liquids. Like, I went ridiculously early. So I was there, you know, at a reasonable time. The, the, wait, the wait lines weren't bad. But the process was horrible. I packed my liquids in clear bags like I'm supposed to in the right size. And they took everything out and they put it in the airport or the CATSA-issued bag to make sure it fit. <laughs> It was just, like, very time-consuming. They did it with a lot of people, like the person behind me, too. So it's, they're not helping. So they, had, so they had to take your 
bottles of liquid out of your transparent bag and put it in their own bag? Yeah. Okay. Duncan, what do you think of that? Uh, it happened to me too. So Deborah's 100% right. Uh, they're causing their own problems. And it's something that is mind boggling because the regulation, in fact, that talks about the uh, Ziploc bags that travelers are, are supposed to use don't even mention the Katza bags. And the Katza bags are actually really flimsy. So if you're a frequent traveler, you never want to use the Katza bags because they're always leaking. So oh. I don't understand. You know, it, it, it's a crazy situation that travelers are in. And Deborah's so right. It adds so much time because what the the screener tells you to do is he looks at your liquids or she looks at your liquids, opens up your bag, which is probably a good quality Ziploc bag, and then tells you to empty it into the the uh, the Katza bag. And then while they're doing it, you know, in my personal experience, I came from the U.S. and so the the liquid, the size of the liquid, happened to be in imperial quantities. It wasn't metric, uh, and so this person, this Katza screener in Toronto spent a few minutes talking to their supervisor to try to make a conversion to Metro. And it was just like this, you know. Oh, no. I, I, and so De Deborah is hitting the nail on the head. So much of this is self-inflicted. And yeah. when, they, when they force people to do, I mean, you know, here's another thing. How yeah. many times do travelers go to the airport where their, their, their um, shoes ring at one terminal, but not the other terminal or that, the other airport? You know, you wear the same shoes because you think they're, they're going to be fine. But then, you know, good old Katza in Vancouver, it rings, but not in Victoria, but maybe in Calgary, but not in Toronto. And it's just, you know, it, it's a situation that's just ripe for disaster. Yeah, got to be a better way. Keep phoning me on this. Star 9898 is the number on your cell. Rick in Kelowna. Hi, Rick. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Go ahead. Good, good. Um just an interesting thing about the Nexus passes. Uh, I applied for my wife and I for Nexus passes uh, through the U.S. Customs site last year. Uh, next step is to go to a, a Nexus office. Um, at this point in time, there are no Canadian Nexus offices open for business. This is for the personal interview. Uh, the nearest one, I'd, I'd have to go to Minnesota somewhere um, to uh, get a Nexus interview. But anyway... Um, the the U.S. Nexus offices have reopened. The Canadian ones have not. They say that they're in the process of consulting with the U.S. people before they reopen. What have those people been doing for the last two years that were staffing those offices? Well, that's a good question. Duncan, do you know? Look, I'm not an expert on Nexus, and I'm in the exact same boat. Um, my Nexus uh, uh, membership expires in May 2023, and you're allowed to make um, your application, your, to send your application in one year before you, uh, your application expires. And apparently, apparently it's, it's taking upwards of two years for people to get an interview with the Canadian Nexus office. The U.S. has never uh, stopped uh, doing it. So in the U.S., their version of Nexus, which is called Global Entry, is proceeding without any delays. But for some weird reason, um, you know, Canada has decided that uh, they're going to take their sweet time on this. And so I think that what's happening is all of these expired Nexus members are, are in the regular security lines, which is making mm. the situation even more difficult. So you've got people that are pre-vetted who have all of their information in the hands of the Canadian government, and they've figured out a way to even to screw that up. So, it, you know, this is a very, very difficult situation okay. for travelers. Hey, Duncan, we just have one minute left here. Do you think that 
Canada should drop the vaccine mandate for federally for federal employees, including airport employees. Like, would that would that help the situation? Look, it wouldn't hurt. Um, the federal vaccine mandate is a, a two dose mandate, where the second dose is a year old. So, you know, this is total COVID theater. There's no reason for them to continue it. But, you know, for some reason, these guys want to continue it. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much. All right, let's talk about the price of gas right now, hitting Canadians squarely in the wallet, especially in Vancouver. Of course, we have the dubious distinction of being the highest gas prices in Canada. In fact, we've got the highest gas prices on the continent. i got Franco Terrazano standing by, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Let's have a listen here to a breakdown in some of the gas prices we're seeing across the country right now. Have a listen. It's uh, only going up, as you mentioned, and um, it's going to go up another three cents or so later this week. Now, when we break down the price of gas all across the country, Montreal, for instance, over the weekend, the price of gas hit just under $2.24 a litre. In Vancouver yesterday, the price of gas was just under $2.37 a litre. Places like Calgary and Edmonton, those were some of the few places where the price of gas was still under $2.00. Okay, let's discuss now with Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Franco, thanks for coming on today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so let's talk about the price of gas, especially in Vancouver and how many all the taxes on there. So when you gas up in Vancouver, what percentage are you paying to the tax man every time you fill up? You're paying close to 40%. You know, I heard you say at, at the top that the highest highest gas prices in, in all of Canada, well, you're also paying the highest taxes on gas yeah. in all of Canada. So in Vancouver, every time you go to fuel up your car, you're paying six different types of taxes, right? You see the sales tax but you, on your receipt, but you're actually paying six different types of taxes. So if you fill up 64 liters, you're looking at close to 50 bucks in just taxes alone. And, and, you know, these high gas prices are extremely painful. Many people are, are, are struggling to afford the fuel and the price to work. And, and yes, there are many different factors that influence the price of gasoline right now. But one thing that our politicians need to do is they need to control what they can control and they can provide relief uh, simply by reducing how much taxes they're taking at the pump. Yeah, when you take break down some of the taxes on a liter of gas in Vancouver, of course, you've got the carbon tax. There's a provincial fuel tax on there. In Vancouver, there is a, a TransLink tax to help pay for transit services. And then you've got the sour cherry, I guess, on top of the cake is like the GST, right? Like, is the GST charged on the whole, just the gas cost, or is it also charged on top of the other taxes, like a tax on no, a tax? It- it's, it is. It's the tax on a tax. So yeah. what's happening is the federal or provincial government, federal government, they add all these taxes on your fuel. And then in Vancouver, you have the federal government sales tax is taxed on top of all the other taxes, right? So they tax your fuel and then they tax the taxes on the fuel. Um, that adds about, uh, you know, very close to about three cents a liter of gas, just the tax on tax right there. Yeah. But here's the thing. Not only are we seeing just high taxes driving up the price of fuel here in Canada, but it's, it's about to get worse. Because right now you're paying about 11 cent per liter carbon tax on gasoline. Well, within the decade, it's going up to nearly 40 cents per liter of gasoline just in the carbon tax alone. Then you got the five other types of taxes that you'll have to pay as well. 
Okay, well, British Columbia, we have our own carbon carbon tax, right? So we're exempt from the federal carbon tax, but I guess they're all going up approximately the same rate? That's exactly right, because remember, yeah. it's a federal backstop. So if you don't meet the federal government's requirements, then the provincial government is going to have to raise the carbon tax in line. So by 2030, you need to expect to pay the federal backstop, which is going to add about 40 cents per litre to the price of gasoline, even in Vancouver and the rest of British Columbia. Yeah. Speaking of that tax on tax, like charging GST on top of the carbon tax or whatever, how can they justify that? Like the GST is supposed to be a tax on goods and services, right? Goods and services tax. Like how is a tax? Are they trying to argue that the tax that you pay is part of your, is a service? So that's why well, they I don't try. Think like they I just don't to justify it. Uh, I don't think they even are trying to justify it. I haven't heard justification from from the federal government. I think what they're trying to do, and of course, I can't really attribute motivation, but I, I I don't think they are trying to justify it. I think they're they're hoping that Canadians don't realize just how much tax they're paying on top of the other taxes at the pump. So I actually haven't heard any justification. It, it almost seems to be like, well, hopefully people don't notice. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's it's a lot to say the least. So, what kind of impact does that have? I mean, when we're having these record high gas prices, what does that do for family budgets, personal spending decisions people make, the economy, small business? What are your concerns there? Oh, it's absolutely huge. Um, especially after we we've gone through two years of a pandemic where so many people, especially in the private sector, may have taken a pay cut, may have lost their job. So many people are already paying, playing catch-up here in Canada. And these high gas prices, I mean, high gas prices, high inflation across the board might be the key economic issues facing families. And, and of course, we live in such a large province, right? Like if you're living outside of Abbotsford and you have to get into Vancouver for work, I mean, many families need to, uh, need to fuel up. It's, it's not a nice to have. It really is a necessity here in Canada. And what's so unfortunate is that we continue to see many governments, uh, provincial and federal, continue to raise taxes at the gas pump during the pandemic, while other countries around the world are providing tax relief. Let me give you a few examples. The United sure. Kingdom announced huge, about $8 billion worth of fuel tax relief. South Korea cut its gas taxes by 30%. Germany is cutting gas taxes. The Netherlands just cut its gas tax by 21%. You've got Italy, Ireland, Israel, India, Peru, Poland, uh, Newfoundland, Labrador, New Jersey, Florida. They are cutting gas taxes, but we see the federal government, we see some provincial governments continue to raise the tax bill at the pumps while these other jurisdictions are providing their citizens with relief. Okay, a lot of these are, are countries that are part of global climate change initiatives as well, right? And do a lot of them have carbon taxes or like how do they justify slashing gas taxes at a time when they say they're trying to cut carbon emissions? Well, I think they realize that they have to prioritize and, and the priority has to be the fact that Cana- or Canadians and their citizens are having a difficult time making ends meet. Right, that has to be the priority. We are facing three decades high inflation here in Canada. Um, yeah. You go to the you go to fuel up, and then you got to go to the, <laughs> the grocery store, and you're worried about whether or not you can afford to put ground beef in your grocery cart. Right, the, the, what what we need to see our prior, our politicians do is prioritize relief because many Canadians are having a difficult time making their paychecks last at the end of the two week period. Okay, we've seen some provincial governments. Well, at least Alberta has cut gas taxes next door. Have any other provinces cut provincial taxes? 
So Newfoundland and Labrador just announced that they're okay. cutting gas taxes as well. And Ontario says they're going to uh, cut gas taxes beginning on July 1st. So you are seeing wow. some provinces announce gas tax relief. Uh, but again, I mean, British Columbia in step with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau raising carbon taxes. And, and especially in Vancouver, drivers are already paying the biggest tax bill at the pumps in all of Canada. Okay, what do you do with with all that lost revenue? Like, let's say the government did what you want them to do and cut gas taxes. That would punch a big hole in their revenue stream, though, right? What do you do about that? Well, there's two things things you have to consider. The first one, I'm just going to loop back to it. We have to prioritize the fact that Canadians and many families can barely afford to pay rent, are having a very difficult time putting food on the table. So you've got to prioritize relief over increasing government coffers. But number two, to directly address your concerns, we already see inflation driving up government revenue. We already see inflation driving up government revenue. In fact, it's one of the arguments that the Alberta government made when it cut fuel taxes is that you're already seeing inflation fattening government coffers. Right. So Hmm. the thing that the government needs to do, especially as inflation is driving the government revenue increases, is give taxpayers a break. So which. okay, that's very interesting. So you're saying that because inflation is rising, what they make more money from the GST, like on sales taxes. Yeah, essentially, yeah. that's that's exactly it, right? Yeah. Um, the price of goods are going up. They're bringing in more money through different types of taxes, like sales taxes. Now is the perfect time to give uh, taxpayers a break, give drivers a break at the pumps. And, and not only that, but we're seeing other countries are able to do this. Uh, and it's not like I'm naming these obscure countries. I mean, we're talking about the United Kingdom. We're talking about South Korea. We're talking about Germany, the Netherlands. Uh, we're talking about states within the USA, are doing this. So if, if they can find a way to make their uh, citizens' life a little bit more affordable, I'm sure that politicians in British Columbia and Ottawa can do the same okay. thing. All right, talking gas prices with Franco Terrazano. The phone lines are open 604 280 star 9898, toll free on your cell. Steve and Delta. Hi, Steve. Hey, guys. Well, first off, uh, you know, as far as how it's changing me is. I got three kids, you know, in their late teens, early 20s in university, and I worry for them. So I was thinking early retirement, potentially not waiting until I'm 65, but I I think that's probably going to go out the door because all the money I've managed to hawk away is disappearing with, you know, no interest in the bank and the inflation. So, you know, and, and on the other side of it, I don't think our federal government or our provincial government are anywhere in reality. You know, I think they all probably have auto expenses, so they get more money for their gas. And, and, you know, every decision they make is usually wrong. So, you know, I don't count on them to do anything for me, quite frankly. So I feel like I'm kind of doing it all by myself with no help from anybody, you know, federally, provincially, municipally. You know, nobody's really, nobody cares. And I find the common thing is they all tend to be the center-left guys, and they want us to fight each other. They come up with another you know, thing to distract us, like this gun thing. And once again, they make a stupid decision. Now everybody's buying guns. It's just, it's just ironic how that works. They just, okay. they just got no okay. clue what to do. All right, Steve, thanks a lot for the call. I hope you do make it to the promised land there and get to your retirement. But man, I know, I know, forget about retiring early. Franco, I know people who are in their 70s are still working. They can't afford to retire. 
Your thoughts? I know. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking, right? Uh, these Canadians work their whole life. They do the right thing. They save up. They raise a family. They work hard, and they're they're being beaten up with this inflation tax that we're seeing now. I think Steve mentioned that he's worried about his kids, and and I think he yeah. has every right to be because this tax bill that they're paying that we're paying at the pump is going up. Um, by 2030 in Vancouver, you're looking at over a dollar per liter just in taxes. Right. And I heard this 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 tone deafness from our politicians while in Ottawa. I mean, are they really feeling the pains of inflation when they've given themselves not one, not two, but three pay raises during the pandemic and while their constituents have been struggling? So I feel it. Let's go to Paul on the line in Burnaby. Hi, Paul. What do you think? Well, I own a food manufacturing company, a small one, but we use a lot of natural gas. And uh, so it's not just the tax has gone crazy on gasoline, but natural gas. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, you know, on a two hundred dollar bill, it's uh, carbon tax, forty one bucks. Clean energy levy, one dollar five cents. Then they put the PST on it, then the GST on it, and then another GST on it. So it's fifty two dollars and eighty. So twenty five percent of my natural gas costs are now going to the government. Now, hey, it was used to be dollar sixty five. Now my bill is around two hundred eighty bucks. Really gone up in the last year. How is that? How is that? Even go. How is that affecting your business? Well, it, it just drives up the cost, and unfortunately, in the food business, you, you know, you can't just hike the cost to your customer. And it's really interesting: is the multinational gas and oil companies have made enough killer profits, like three, four times what they did in the last two years. And I yeah. can't understand if we have all this energy in Canada, why can we not have? Why can't the federal government go? to the uh, oil companies to say, look, we'll give you a long-term contract, $80 a barrel uh, for Canadians, or, or same thing with the natural, like protect us. Why is it Saudi Arabia is setting the price yeah. of oil, and then we have all this oil, and then we have to pay uh, world, world prices for it? Okay. Okay, Paul, thank you for that. We'll probably do a whole show on that. Let's, um, <laughs> we've got a ton of calls here, so let's try and squeeze in as many as I can here before we got to go. Bruce and Surrey. Hi, Bruce, go ahead. Oh, hi, Mike. Yeah, just real quick, um, just starting to notice what the price is. Uh, you know, we're in the high school system. It's starting to impact our coaches, I think. We have uh, volunteer coaches. I'm talking about the community coaches. Uh, often we reach out to the community and ask if there's somebody that has an expertise in a certain area. Uh, in, in the case that I'm talking about now, it was for rugby. Uh, we pulled a couple coaches in from the uh, Trinity Western University, uh, some young students. Well, you're asking them now to drive you know, to Richmond, Coquitlam, Delta. And unfortunately, there's not a budget for the school system to pay these coaches. So they're now volunteering yeah. their time and they're getting dinged for gas. But that's, that's all I had to say about okay. that. Okay. Sure Th have more info. Thank you for that. I think it's a, a good perspective to keep in mind how this has a lot of different effects that you might not immediately think of. Glenn and Maple Ridge. Hi, Glenn. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say that I, I, I think it's just cruel on, on, on the government uh, uh, federally and uh, of BC to uh, um, torture and, and, and put their, uh, their constituents in such dire straits with their taxes. There's lots of room for them to take taxes. And, and they throw away money frivolously. Like, we're, like Mr. Horgan announced over a billion dollars for... Uh, for the for the museum, um, <laughs> we threw away two hundred million dollars because he he didn't like that the uh, lib, uh, that the liberals got a bridge going and he wanted All to right. throw twelve million dollars. Like so much money is wasted, but yeah, there's nothing to give back to the uh, constituents. It's like thank it's coming you, out of thank, their pocket. Th 
Thank you, Glenn. Lynn and Kamloops. Lynn, you got like 20 seconds here, okay? Go ahead. I'd like to know how we can pose this question about taxes to Horgan and actually get an answer. That's my question. Lynn, thank you, thank you for the, thank you for the, that point. And I believe, you know, Horgan's under pressure every day that he faces the press on, on these questions. We played some of his comments earlier on the show. Uh, Franco, thanks for coming on today. Hey, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Okay, here we go now with the desperate battle to save low-income housing in Vancouver, especially in the downtown east side, the poorest neighborhood in Canada. Thousands of people in the neighborhood live in SROs, single-room occupancy hotels. It's been called housing of last resort for people. Many of these buildings are old and poor condition, but for many people, no other option. This housing is under threat. The Winters Hotel, destroyed by fire on April 11th. What will become of that low-income housing? The Cobalt Hotel, uh, another one up for possible redevelopment. Let's discuss now with my guest, Vancouver City Councillor Jean Swanson. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Councillor, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. Councillor, how important is this housing in the community? Um, it's very important. If we don't have it, we'll have more homelessness. <laughs> yeah, and so what's, what is happening with some of these buildings that are under threat? Like, let's start with the Winters Hotel that destroyed by fire in April. What is happening there? So that's vacant. Well, you know, it's a pile of rubble right now. Yeah. Um, the people were moved, most of them, into the Columbia Hotel, which fortunately had just been acquired by Atira, but that means that people who are homeless can't move into the Columbia. Then we've also lost the Vogue and the uh, Lucky Lodge for low-income people. Uh, The Lucky Lodge is empty. The people were all pushed out by the landlord or bought out or harassed out, and um, the Vogue, same. And we have the Cobalt, which... The guy has a big ad on his website saying he wants to put a condo hotel there, so 20 stories. So that's four, That's about 300 rooms that have either been lost or at risk of being lost in the last few months. And uh, we just had a report at City Hall that said uh, since 2014, we've had 550 new social housing units built in the downtown east side, only half of them at welfare shelter rates. So that works out by my calculations to 28 new social housing units a year we're getting in the downtown east side. And here we're losing, we could be losing 300 just in a few months. So so I brought a motion to city council that we're going to hopefully deal with today to try and stem the flow of the SROs until we can uh, get more units built. Right. So let's talk about your proposal here. This is to charge developers a, a large fee if they convert or demolish any of the these social housing units, correct? There's four parts to the motion. Right. Actually, the one that I think would be the most effective and the fastest right now, it's to ask the province to have an emergency SRO eviction freeze until we can get enough units. That's the one that I think would be the most important. But there's three other parts. The city tries to do what it can, and it does this with what's called the SRA bylaw. And right now, the SRA bylaw says that 
if an owner uh, converts or demolishes uh, or changes the use of a, an SRO building, uh, the council may charge him, I think it's up to 230000 per unit. Uh, but the problem is that that 230000 doesn't make it, it is, it's too low, right? It isn't the actual cost of a unit. Right now, the units are costing three to 500000 So the, the other three parts of the motion are to have the staff report back uh, with proposed amendments to the SRA bylaw. One would be to hike that conversion charge. Another would be um, uh, to adjust it regularly and um, to ensure that the charge applies to hotels that are destroyed by fire and to actually make it so that when a landlord gets an SRO conversion or demolition permit, we have to make sure that the, how, the tenants are housed before those permits are issued. So the, those three parts to the three okay. those are three parts to the motion. Okay. Speaking to Vancouver City Councilor Gene Swanson, so if you were to increase that fee for demolishing or changing or converting a current low-income housing unit in these hotels, you you want to you want to bump that up to five hundred thousand dollars per unit? Is that right? Well, the the motion is to have staff to report back with a bylaw to increase it to a rate that's just adjusted regularly at the actual cost of building one new unit of social housing. Okay. Sorry, unit lost. Yeah. I've been talking to some people in the development business in Vancouver about this the last day or so, and they say, wow, we've got a housing crisis in this city. We need more housing units built. If you were to charge a five, let's say it's a $500,000 fee for converting a low-income unit, doesn't that just make housing even more unaffordable for everyone? Well, the thing is, that we need to maintain what we the affordability that we have now until yeah. we get more affordability and this is designed to do that it's the city does have a is working with the other two levels of government on an SRO acquisition and rehabilitation strategy and hopefully at some point that will start producing units at which point we can get rid of the moratorium what the is the why would you want to preserve these old hotels that, you know, in many cases are in very poor condition? They, they may have pests that are infecting them, bed bugs. Uh, you know, these some of these these old hotels are, are really terrible places. Why not come up with a more creative way to get more affordable housing built rather than try to preserve these old places? These And a lot of them are like fire traps, as we've seen. Well, uh, actually, they're not fire traps, very, very, except for the winters. We haven't lost people to fires and SROs for a long time because they're all sprinklered, which, yeah. um, thanks to the Downtown Eastside Residents Association in the 1970s, um, so the reason to keep them is because they're better than the street. That's the option. Mm. Why not in, come up with an incentive plan for developers to build more housing? Like maybe you could do like a one-for-one -one swap that 
if you convert an existing unit of social housing, you must pr- provide another unit, a replacement unit in another development that would allow incentivize developers to get more housing built rather than so just sort of... Develop- uh, yeah, go ahead, Gene. A developer isn't going to build, a develop, a private developer isn't going to build a housing for anybody earning under 20, 75000 a year because they need to make a profit. And a low-income person, a person on welfare, gets about 900 a month. A person on disability gets 11-something a month. You know, that's not enough to pay the rent, let alone pay the rent meet. So developers aren't going to, aren't just simply aren't going to build housing for low-income people. So you have to build it. Government needs to build it, right? But well, in the meantime, what? we have to keep these owners from getting rid of the tenants who are in the yeah. last last resort. Right. Okay, I'm just wondering, though, if, if why does the government have to build it? Like, it, it, Could you not s- consider a system where you could incentivize the pr- private sector to build affordable housing by giving them some sort of a carrot or a reward for doing it? Like you could uh, give them approval to build more condos in it in a development in return for making sure that a, per, a proportion of them are affo- at a affordable, uh, affordable low-income the rates. City, the city does that now, you know, yeah. you give some, a developer a bunch of extra floors for condos, then the city says, oh, you have to spend, have X number of floors for nonprofit housing. Right. And then they deliver it turnkey to the city and the city leases it to, um, to a nonprofit to run, so right. That that's not adequate. Now. But that's not adequate. No. It's not, that's not addressing no, the problem. No, we have yeah. we have over two thousand homeless people on the street. Five hundred, and you know about five hundred of them. There's no space for shelters in shelters even. So it's pretty okay. bad. We're following the issue closely, Councillor. Thank you for coming on with your for your time today. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Mike. All right, let's keep talking about the fight for affordable housing now. You heard my conversation there with Vancouver City Councillor Jean Swanson. She is concerned about SROs, single-room occupancy hotels in the downtown east side, being converted into other types of projects, notably condos. She wants to have protection for these buildings, including a potential $500,000 per unit fee on any developer that redevelops a low-income housing unit in an SRO. She wants a freeze or a ban on uh, removing these SRO rooms right now. She says a lot of them have been lost. Let's uh, discuss now with my guest, Paul Sullivan. Paul's a real estate analyst. He's a principal with Ryan, a global tax service and software provider. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Paul. Thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Thank you. Thanks. I know you heard part of that interview there. What do you think about her concerns here on those SRO hotels, some of them burning down, some of them being converted into other purposes? Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, well, Councillor Swanson's heart's in, in, in the right place on this. I mean, the Winters Hotel situation was a complete tragedy, and, and every Vancouverite would agree. Um, this is the lowest quality form of housing we have in, in Vancouver, and my fear is that if we add another penalty onto this and make it less attractive, it's going to continue the deterioration uh, of this form of housing. It's, 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 going to, it's going to get worse. It's going to get more dangerous. It's going to be a terrible place to live. 
So, you know, I, I just think we need to change the conversation. Like, we need to get housing built. We need more housing built. You know, 28 per year, that's, that's just not going to cut it. So, you know, governments don't build housing. Home builders build housing. So what we need to do, as you were saying earlier, Mike, is how do we incentivize this to happen? Yeah. How do we create places where people can live with dignity? And, you know, there's lots of options around that. Uh, rather than penalizing uh, property owners over this issue, I, I agree with protecting what we have, but let's rapidly move the conversation to building more of it. And how we're going to do that was, like you were saying, incentives. And, you know, you talked about a one-for-one one density plan, you bring in condos, but how about this? The city's got $6 billion worth of properties they own in this town. Why don't they wave their magic wand and zone them for 20 FSR, four sites, we'll get 500 units on the table. It's zoned tomorrow. And take those sites to auction and let's see which home builders will pick that up and get these things built. We put a two-year time frame on them because they're pre-zoned, pre-approved, get them built. And if there's not any profit in, in that will create that housing, they can't, i.e. they don't get bought, then let's put some incentives in place. Okay, you get this much density on that site, you go to the you have land bank density. We have a land bank in Vancouver. We can you can have credits there. Let's go to public auction with city sites. Let's get 500 units on the table next week. Yeah, what it goes going back to the the SRO buildings that exist now that the councilor wants to see preserved. You know, I asked her about you called it the lowest quality housing that we've got. I called them a, a fire trap in many cases, the tragic fire we saw at one of those hotels recently. But she said, well, actually, we haven't had any any other deaths from fires recently because they've all had sprinklers installed in them. I'm not sure that really improves them that much. I mean, what are your thoughts on, on those those buildings, like the quality of them and the just basically the living, the living, the livability of them? Yeah, yeah, Mike. I, as a real estate appraiser, I've been through a lot of these properties over over my 32 years. I've been in business, and and they're deplorable. Um, I I don't think Vancouverites want people living at this quality of housing. It, it they they don't all have sprinklers in them. They're infested with bed bugs. Uh, we have people with mental health problems there that need help. Um, they, they, they are the, the housing of last resort and it's yeah. not a lot of place for people with, to have dignity and, and we want better for these people and we can get there by changing the dialogue from penalties and taxes. All this council brings up and our mayor is taxes and penalties. Let's get on to the conversation about incentives so we can get home builders to build housing. Governments don't build housing. But would they be affordable? Would it be affordable housing, though? Like if you say, look, hey, let's let the private sector build our way out of this. How would there be a guarantee that any of this housing would be affordable for like we're talking the lowest income people here? Because it's easily done through zoning and land use contracts. We do it all over the place. You heard Gene talk about it, that there's just it's happening in condo projects. It's just we're not getting enough of it. So I'm saying let's take that that model and go further with it and and to make it viable rather than asking the private sector to go buy sites and compete with condo developers let's get the city put their money where their mouth is put public land city land on the table pre-zoned ready to go and then put a very strong land use contract in place as to exactly what is to be built and who it's for and if there's no bids 
then we know we need to incentivize it by offering density in the land bank to get people to do this type of stuff. Okay, just got a minute left here, Paul. Could you could just let me ask you again about the, you know the amount of land that's owned by the city? Could you go over that again? Like, how much land do they have that they could they could leverage here for housing? Well, th- there's lots of public information uh, about the the city's land. Um, they have it throughout Vancouver. It, it's been reported to be worth upwards of six billion dollars. Hundreds of properties all over the city. Um, it's got all sorts of uses from vacant land to parking lots to hotels and retail properties. They've got new properties. There's lots of opportunity. All right, let's keep talking about the affordable housing challenge in Metro Vancouver with my guest, Paul Sullivan. Paul is a real estate analyst. He is a principal with Ryan, a global tax service and software provider. Phone me on the open line on this one. Do you think the city of Vancouver should take the city-owned land and use it for housing? Call me and tell me what you think on that. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Paul, just picking up on that point we talked about earlier, the city of Vancouver is actually the largest landholder in the city too, right? They own a lot of land, a lot of property. They do, and, and I, you know, just having a look at an article in the Hive here, it's uh, you know roughly six billion dollars. Uh, and what's super interesting about it is, you know, nine percent held for parking lots. I mean, why? Eight uh, percent of the land is long-term land for future development. Well, I tell you, if you're a home builder in this city and you're holding land for future development, you're a you're a speculator, and you're hit with uh, empty home tax. You're hit with spec tax. Uh, it costs millions per year. So the city's hoarding this land and not putting it to use uh, that 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 can solve some problems is is a lot of it already zoned for affordable housing i, I you know affordable housing as a use isn't clearly defined anywhere it typically comes yeah. from a, an applicant and in, in, in a redevelopment proposal but let's be honest here that the city has the magic wand wave it zone it and get it to the market we we know that this type of housing isn't profitable so we need to put the land in at free. And if it's not free, put it to public auction. We will define, mm. I mean, people are looking for opportunity to build homes. It doesn't matter if they're, they're 300 square foot non-market housing projects. The market will figure out what they can afford to pay. And, and that's how a market works. And you're not going to get homes built unless the market's involved. You're not going to get enough tax revenue and governments don't build housing. So we're just not going to get there with all these disincentive plans. Okay, let's go to your phone calls on it. Phone me on the open line on this one, 604-280-9898, star 9898, toll free on your cell. Daryl and Coquitlam. Hi, Daryl, go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I just want to ask your guest, why are the city of Vancouver and other metro municipalities don't have bylaws that require development of empty land. And I'll give your guest an example. There is a lot that's probably half a city block big on Robson Street uh, between Burrard and Denman. It is on the north side. It is owned offshore. It has been empty. I don't think there's a tree on it for 25 years plus. The Vancouver Sun did an article on it. So that land is owned privately, and I understand what he's saying about the city's land. We have yeah. the same problem in Vancouver, in, in Coquitlam, where people own lots of land, and they leave them vacant, and they just don't build. Perhaps you can guess, can comment on that. Paul, your thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, we all see that. Um, I mean, there's a, a hundred different reasons a private property owner chooses not to develop. They're just not developers, period. But, you know, I think the provincial government and the city of Vancouver took this, uh, took a pretty heavy hand on this. And, you know, the city has their empty home tax, which applies to residential vacant land. The province has the speculation and vacancy tax that applies to vacant, empty residential land. So they, they, they put those mechanics in place to, to, in, to, to force development on those properties. And, you know, with the empty home tax now at 5% and potentially going to 10% next year, those costs are, are substantial. They're millions of dollars on these types of properties. And I think that's going to push those things along. Okay, keep calling me on this. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Steve in Vancouver. Hi, Steve. What do you think? Hi, Mike. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm just saying uh, I'm a taxpayer in the city of Vancouver. And, and I, I mean, we're at our wit's end here. Like, Vancouver cannot absorb and build all the housing that's required for low-income earners. And if I'm BC Housing, which in fact is the body that's responsible... They should be sharing the load with other municipalities in the lower mainland and throughout because A, the land's cheaper and you can spread out the, the housing that people need. Because I'm just getting sick and tired of Vancouver having to absorb it. And we talk about should we make city land available for housing? Well, that's land that as a taxpayer I own and others own it. And it can be used, it should be put to the best use possible to raise money to apply to civic accountabilities in Vancouver. My roads suck. My fire department's overburdened. The police are overburdened. I mean, it's just constantly being driven towards housing, which is not a responsibility that I believe the taxpayer in Vancouver should absorb. Okay, interesting point. Paul Sullivan, your thoughts? Yeah, I I don't disagree. I mean, BC Housing, that's their sole purpose, is to be there to provide affordable housing. And absolutely, they should be partnership in this program, as they are just about every social housing program in the marketplace. But, you know, if you get a Vancouver City councillor that's, you know, uh, taking this type of an approach to Vancouver property owners, I just think they need to look in the mirror and say, well, what are you doing to contribute to the solution here? And, and, and I don't see it. And, you know, when you have 700 properties in Vancouver, let's, let's just try, try a couple. Let's put four out there and, and let's get a little bit more creative because, you know, I, I understand the concept. We all own that land, but we all have this problem, and none of us like what's going on in the downtown east side, and I think we all want to help solve it. I'm no. not saying sell the farm, but I'm saying let's get a little more creative. Rick on the line in Richmond. Hi, Rick. What do you think? Uh you talking to me? Yeah. Yeah, Rick, go ahead. Uh, I'd like to see an audit done for the incomes of people that are on on supported housing because from Canby Street Bridge to Granville Island, all of that land from the waterfront up to Sixth Avenue was developed and it, it's uh, it's subsidized. Most of it is subsidized, and I've known I I, I lived down there part time. I, I owned a condo in the one area that was good, and uh, people that I've known have had three bedroom and. And uh, two-bedroom places, they go work out of town, they sublet it, and they still pay their subsidized housing. And everything hmm. is built for them. Everybody everybody wants to be on False Creek because it's the place to be, but nobody's paying freight. Paul, Paul Sullivan, your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I mean, that's unfortunate to hear. I, I don't have any firsthand evidence on that, but 
I've seen models where there's mandatory annual disclosure of incomes, and if you pass that threshold, your your units go into the market, and only uh, uh, allowable occupants are are in these buildings. So that that sounds a bit fraudulent to me. Hey, Paul, we have one minute left here. You've been in this business a long time. Have you ever seen an affordability challenge like the one we face right now? I mean, I I can't imagine like a young family just starting out trying to break into this market is so unaffordable. Your thoughts? Yeah, and I, and I think people need to open their mind a little bit to the issue. This is not a city of Vancouver issue. This issue is in every major city in North America right now. And perhaps Vancouver is, is up there because of our, our land price and our geographic restraints with mountains, water, ALR. Um, we're constrained with land value, but now we have a further problem of construction costs and labor. So our problem is not going away. It's getting worse, but it's no different in every major city. So, you know, uh, people are reacting to this as they need to. They need to. They need to realize they can't live where they want to live, and and that happens throughout the world. I mean, we need to enhance our transportation infrastructure, which we're doing. We're doing some things right, but coming up with penalties and taxes and making it less affordable on the people that have the privilege to live in Vancouver, it's not going to create more housing and it's going to make it less affordable for everybody. Paul, thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Appreciate it. Yeah. Pleasure, Mike.